blessing it is to be able to sing praises to God. If you want to be open your Bibles to Isaiah the sixth chapter, we'll begin there in just a few moments. I'll make reference, one quick reference to 1 Samuel uh, the second chapter before we get into that in, in Isaiah the sixth chapter. But if you want to be turning to either one of those, we'll begin there in just a moment as we continue the beautiful topic of looking at the holiness of God, which we looked at this morning three Three times in repetition, we see at a couple of places in the Bible describing this wonderful attribute of God, holy, holy, holy. And surely as we're commanded that as he is holy, we are in our conduct to be holy. We're spending today to give a very important study of what is it like to see the holiness of God so that then we see even in this today how it affects us. But then when we go to 1 Peter next Sunday morning and we spend time there when direct teaching about the holiness that we are to live, we, we are very much reminded after this Sunday study of the source of that. Before we get into that, I just, uh, I want to uh, echo appreciation to uh, our eldership and also to Wayne and Debbie Miller for being willing uh, to come and to work with us uh, as a congregation. I hope you'll be praying for them. Uh, no matter how much you look forward going to another congregation to work, it is a very difficult thing to leave a congregation that you're working with. And so the transition is always tough. And they'll be announcing that tonight at West End. And I want to encourage you to pray for for them uh, tonight and pray for the West End congregation. Uh, but I'm so thankful that Wayne is going to, to be working with us. Uh, wherever he's worked, the congregation has thrived spiritually and in every other way. And uh, we, are, we are just so blessed to be able to have a man like him uh, with the experience that he has and the quality minister that he is to be willing to come aboard and work with us. And we really look forward to this. There's, there's been a lot of thinking and prayers and all that, that have been going on for several months. And we're so thankful. There are so many passages in the scripture that speak to the holiness of God. You know how when you start studying something, you realize, wait a minute, that seems to be on every page that I'm reading. I love the way Hannah, and you remember her story, is really a difficult story for us to hear, especially mothers. She, she couldn't have a, a child, and she begged God through prayer over and over, and she even bargained with God, I'll give him back to you. And, and he can be raised in the temple. I'll wean him, and he can be in service to you. Mothers, how, how difficult would that be? And so God gives her a son, and, and as he's weaned, she takes him for Eli to raise in the temple. And so then the question is, as, as she's leaving, what, what is the, 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 the feeling going to be toward God? Oh, so you're going to make me do this. I'm always amazed when I go back and reread Hannah's prayer. And all we're going to do is read the first two verses of it in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Do you and I know God's holiness? 
so that our praise naturally in our prayers exalts him as holy and no one else is like you. What a beautiful exaltation of God that this young mother has as she has just left her son to finish being raised in the temple and in God's work. And he became a mighty son. Samuel was a mighty, mighty minister, prophet, uh, servant of God. And just to think of her prayer is so beautiful. But as we continue to think about holy, being holy, seeing God's holiness. I want to begin this evening with, with this simple question. Do you desire to see God? I really think that that's going to be a part of the, the base layer of whether or not we ever grasp to whatever degree we as humans on this earth can grasp the holiness of God. It's going to be wrapped up in that thought. Do you desire to see God? When, when you think about eternity beyond this earth is a major part of your expectation of that is I can't wait to see God. When you live on this earth and your, your spiritual yearnings are expressed within that, is there a desire to see God? We don't have time to study this tonight, but if I'm striking on something that maybe you haven't thought about in a while, or you're saying, you know, I don't know if I've ever thought about that, I want to encourage you to go back and read Exodus, the 33rd chapter, and see a man who his heart was set upon seeing God. It's almost as if Moses could not get enough of God. And, and so he even, he even pleads with God. God, just let me see your face. And you remember God says, you can't see my face and live. And, but, but that's not enough for Moses. I want to see you. I want to see you. And finally, God bargains with him and says, I tell you what, I'm going to set you on the cleft of this rock. And I'm going to let my glory pass by you. But as, as, I, as I come towards you with my front, I'm going to cover you with my hand. You get some kind of idea of how mighty and big God is? I'm going to cover you with my hand. And the Hebrew word is, I'll let you see my hindquarters. What is the glory of God like that, that us and our flesh can't really live to see the, the, the greatness of the glory of God's face? But what kind of heart do you have to have to be like Moses where your constant thought, your constant pleading is, God, I just want to see you. I want to see you. And we talked about this morning that, that when people got any kind of closer glimpses of God that had good hearts, they didn't leave the same. They trembled in fear. They found themselves to be better people after it was over with because of the repentance that it brought in their life and because of the faith and the trust they were willing to put in God because of that experience to be drawn nearer to see God a little bit more clearer. So that's our goal this month. Our goal this month is to desire to see God. Our goal this month is what is it that we can uncover in Scripture that will help us individually come to a greater understanding of the holiness of God and what that would look like lived out. But let me put one more angle on this introduction so you desire to see God. Which God? I don't mean to be disrespectful to you as I say this, but could I say it bluntly? Do you want to see the God that you conjured up in your mind or do you want to see the holy God? 
Do you want to see a God that you've created that looks a lot like humans, but he's just a little bit bigger than humans and just a little bit more supernatural than humans? Or do you want to see the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, glorious above any glory, power above any other power? Do you want to see God? That's what we ought to be hungry for. Not to be comfortable with an image that we contemplate in our mind. And usually when we do that, we bring him down closer to our human level so that we can try to comprehend him better. Instead of bringing him down, how about we have a, an honest approach to God to recognize that the grandeur and glory and the fullness we'll never know on this side of eternity. But instead of bringing him down, what about if we continue to reach up to bring us up to a greater understanding of who he really is. I don't want to just know the holiness of God as I think it may be. I want to know the holiness of God as it is and not shape God, but allow God to shape me. And surely you would join in that tonight and this month as we continue to study. And so we go to Isaiah, the sixth chapter, to see who this God is and, and also just to see this text a little bit better that, that describes our uh, amazing God that we serve. Isaiah, the sixth chapter in verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why did it begin with the sentence that he began? It was the year the king died. Why is that significant? Well, we can throw out a few facts that we know and then we can each draw our own conclusion about maybe why he would have thrown that in this to say, okay, here's a, a young man that God is saying, I wanna call him to be a prophet. But before I call him to be a prophet, there is some transformation that I need to do in his life. God, what are you gonna do? I'm going to show him my holiness so that he can be conformed by that holiness, so that he can be better prepared to go out and to serve as a prophet. And that's ultimately what this part, this chapter is about. Okay, so when is this? Well, when we study in scripture, Uzziah, back in 2 Chronicles, the 26th chapter, Uzziah became king when he was only 16 years old and he served for 52 years. Raise your hand if you don't mind over here, me using you as exhibit A. If you're 16 years old, a few of you, raise your hand. If you're 16, high, real high. All right, that's your king. Just pick one of those. That's your king right there. Now, not only, not only is that your king, think about it, that's your king for 52 years. How many times, how many times have, have you seen a president go for two terms and then, you know, you kind of look over at somebody like 20 years old and they say, well, I don't really remember the president before. And you're like... Are you kidding me? Yeah, you, you go for eight years and you start bringing a lot of people that say, well, I, I kind of only know this president. Think if you have a king for 52 years. And not only that, not just any king, but this guy was a good king. This guy is mentioned in 2 Chronicles 26 being one that followed God. And while he was king, the agriculture seemed to prosper. 
the military prospered, not as much as when David was king, but much more than when many others were king. I'm telling you, Israel did pretty good under this guy. And so for 52 years, you have this really good king that people would have said, I'm glad he's my king. But then at the very end, he becomes haughty. Isn't it bad when you don't finish well? He decides he's going to go in and offer an incense that only the priests were supposed to offer. The priests tried to stop him. Finally, God moved in. God said, I'm going to give you leprosy. And he had leprosy until he died. And that's how he ended his kingdom as a king, leading as a king. What do you think would be the feeling in a nation if your king that for most of the years had been a great king and he'd led you for 52 years and now his son that's in the mid-twenties comes in and sits on the throne? Do you think there's going to be a little bit of uneasiness? A little bit of unsettledness? I can't help but wonder if that's not the timing for God to call Isaiah to be a prophet to bring some stability to the people, to bring a voice from God to the people. And even if that's not the reason, that is the timing because it is the year that he died and maybe it was a few months he was being experiencing this before he died or maybe it was a few months after he died that, that uh, Isaiah experienced this, but it's in the year that he died. And so you, you can imagine the people wanting some, some settled ways. And what do we have here? We have him coming in as a prophet. And what did he see? He saw the Lord. And I, I'd like for you to notice in verse 1, your translation more than likely has Lord spelt with a capital L and O-R-D as a lowercase. When you skip down to verse 3, the seraphims were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And more than likely, your translation has all four of those letters capitalized because they're different words. They're both are very significant. But the third verse there, the Lord there is the word for Jehovah. It is the name of God. In other words, this is the name. When they're crying out, when the seraphims are crying out, holy, 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 who is it? Who is it that's three times holy there? Who is it? It's the one who's self-existent. It's the one who is eternal. He is the one that has all power. As Hannah would say, he's the one that no one is like him. No one sits beside him. Are you talking about this God or are you talking about this God? Nobody else is beside him. What a great, awesome explanation, praise, compliment for the seraphims to call him by his name, Lord. But then when we see him up on the throne in the sixth chapter in verse one, that word, Lord, is the idea of supreme authority. It's also the idea sometime with a lowercase l, we will see individuals that in the scriptures that are uh, masters of servants and they'll be called Lord because they're in a supreme authority over the ones in which they rule or their jurisdiction or their authority. You see, there's something significant very significant 
about when Jesus came to this earth. And, and probably most everyone probably in this room immediately just thinks of him being the son of God, incarnation, you understand that. But for just a moment, don't take that for granted. It is significant that when Jesus came to this earth, out of the many descriptions that describe him in flesh on this earth, one of the greatest would be what? Lord. When Jesus came to this earth and was described as Lord, it's kind of like, wait a minute. That's that name or that description of highest authority. Will you look with me to Philippians, the second chapter, and, and notice how Paul said it in, in Philippians, the second chapter. In Philippians, you remember the second chapter, the first four verses deal with how we ought to be humble and, and of finally in verse five, have the one mind like the mind of Christ. And then in verse six and following is Jesus as that perfect example of humility. And you remember as you go down through here, like in verse six, he was in the form of God, but he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now we'll have on your slide here, if you want to pick up with us, look at verse nine and, and notice the significance to this name, Lord. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. Remember, he came to this earth and humbled himself all the way to death. And so it didn't stop there. In other words, Paul wants us to understand I want you to see that as he was willing to humble himself to the lowest point, even to the point of execution, I want you to see where as he was willing to do what that, what the father was willing to do. He went to the lowest point. The father took him to the highest point. So now look at this. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Now someone says, well, I know what that name is. It's Jesus Christ. Well, it, it is in a sense, but you've got to go a little bit further than that in this text. So let's see what this name is. Keep reading with me, if you will, verse 10. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those in heaven, those on earth. Think about what we're studying even today. The seraphims, were they praising the name of, of the Lord? Absolutely. The, you know, you can imagine the seraphims' knees bowing uh, in, in, as they praise him. Every knee is, is uh, going to bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. To what? The glory of God the Father. I want you to know, Paul says, that as, as humble as Jesus could be, the father said, I won't leave him in the lowest place of humility. I'm going to raise him from the dead and he's going to ascend into heaven and we're going to place his name up on high. How high? Everyone will declare Jesus Christ as what? Lord, the highest authority. All the heavenly realm will say he is Lord. What well, we study in Isaiah 6, the seraphims, the heavenly realm, they're saying he's Lord. And all on earth will say that he's Lord. So we go back to our text in Isaiah, the sixth chapter. 
And we see that not only does his name, Lord, refer to that high place of authority, but in verse one, where is he sitting? He's sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. You know, if, if we walked in here uh, one Sunday and, and, and imagine that instead of the pulpit here, there was this high throne and somebody was sitting in it, Griff. Griff was, was, Griff was sitting in it. How many, how many of you would say, who does he think he is? He, there's not anybody in here that belongs on the throne. That's a place of high authority. You remember what the Lord said in the scripture? We're brethren. There's not a hierarchy in the Lord's church. We're brethren. Oh, we have different roles, but, but the idea of somebody's better, where's the Lord belong? All of the scenes that we see into heaven, we see that he is on the throne and he belongs there. And all of the words that are being said are exalting him as Lord, the name for one that belongs in the place of high authority. But then notice also he was wearing kingly garb. Your clothing, whether we like it or not, it always says something about us. Everybody in here, without exception, can recognize a UPS driver. You can recognize the difference in a football player and a baseball player. Just as true as those things are in certain cultures, it is clear as clear can be who is the king and who's not the king. Just look at what they're wearing. This king was wearing a robe and the train of that robe was one that was describing his majesty, describing his place of honor. We've all been to weddings and we know that, that at weddings there's only one that has a long train because for that wedding day, there's one that that day is all about her, right, grooms? It's all about, it's her day. It's, she's the one. Now, if guys get any kind of little train, you remember the days that the tuxes with the long tails were, you know, that's the best guys ever got. It didn't get down to the floor, but it, it got almost down to, to your knees when, when you had tails on your tuxes. But, but the idea of that is, again, it was the groom that wore that, somebody that, that was in a place of honor. Do you notice how long his, his train is? His train, imagine this, he's sitting on the throne and it's high and lifted up. And his train is flowing off of the throne and it's filling up the entire temple. If you're in the temple, if you're in the presence of the Lord on the throne, his majesty is touching you. You are well aware that he is the one that deserves honor. You know, for my generation, I will never forget Princess Diana's train that, that was at her wedding. Uh, that's one shot of it, and, and there's been a lot of other shots for the cathedral shot from the top as, you know, it was televised, and, and you saw her just trailing such a long train. It was obvious that day who that day was about, who was the place of honor. Tonight, is it obvious to you as we worship that we 
are in the throne room of God. And his train is all around us. He's on a throne high and lifted up. He is the Lord. And these beautiful songs that we have sung about his holiness, he deserves every word and a million other words we could say to praise him and to praise his holiness. What a beautiful, beautiful thought. But as we continue, I'd like for you to look again at Isaiah 6 and I'd like for you to notice that as he talks about that, let's go down to verse four. We see there in verse three that as the seraphims were praising him, there was a reaction. We talked about this morning, and so we're not going to elaborate upon it at all. Verse four, the door reacted to it. The doorpost reacted. It was shaken. But then we talked about this morning, what happens to good-hearted people when they get close to the holiness of God? And are, are you picking up how if we are worshiping as we should worship, we get to be reminded and perhaps glimpse into the holiness of God every week if we truly are worshiping. And that's a beautiful thought to think that, that for Christians, every time we come together, it ought to be a reminder of the holiness of God and it, it ought to some way help us see the holiness of God better, even not just a reminder. And so where does that leave us? His response was, woe is me. I mentioned to you this morning that woe is a lamenting, but it's also a judgment cry. Anytime in scripture, the Lord cast a woe upon someone, he was casting a judgment. In other words, it wasn't a blessing. I'm going to curse you right now, in other words. You have been tried, you've been tested, and you have failed the test. The judgment now is against you. Well, what's interesting is the Lord didn't give this judgment. This is the judgment he gave himself. I see the greatness of God, and I would suggest to you that if you could have gone to Isaiah the day before Isaiah 6 and said, hey, Isaiah, how you doing with God? He'd probably said, I'm a pretty good godly man. I'm trying my best to live a good life. I think I'm doing okay. But once he saw the holiness of God, he didn't feel so all put together. Instead, he said, woe is me. I want to remind you tonight, we're going to turn to Numbers, the sixth chapter of the opposite of a woe is a what? A blessing. Do you remember the blessing that God told Moses to tell Aaron because Aaron was, was the high priest and, and, and his sons were priests and, and he said, I want you to teach them to give my children of Israel a blessing. And these three stanzas, isn't it short? But isn't it beautiful? And, and don't get lost in the beauty in his poetry, if you will, that you miss the beauty of the truth of it. I would suggest to you that as we read this and you study it over in your mind, that all three of these statements that he's saying, that they're not woes, they're not curses, these are blessings. Notice how really all three of them are saying the very same thing. The first thing that the priest were to teach the children of Israel about God is the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What's one of the, go back, let's go back to each of the first 
first few words of each phrase here. If the Lord blessed you, what would be one of the greatest blessings he could give you? What about if the Lord made his face to shine upon you? Wouldn't that be one of the greatest blessings he could give you? What about if the Lord lifted up his countenance and his countenance affected you? Well, how would all of that affect you? Well, let's go back to the last few words of each of those. What if the Lord kept you? We need protection. We need somebody to sustain us. We need somebody to be there to keep us. Well, how would the Lord keep us if he was going to keep us? We would need the last phrase of the next. We need his grace to be upon us. We can't be kept without the grace of God in a good relationship with God. Well, what would that do? Look at the last phrase of the next. And give you peace. This is all about God casting a blessing that is gracious, that ends in peace. God, how are you going to give us that blessing that is gracious, that ends in peace? He says, I'm going to let my face, I'm going to let my countenance fall upon you. And friends, if we didn't know passages like Isaiah 6, we'd probably say, what in the world does that mean? How is the countenance of God going to affect me? And then we read passages like Isaiah 6 and we see how the holy countenance of God changed Isaiah drastically. It transformed him. And the reason I've continued to say that word today is that next Sunday when we study 1 Peter, we're going to study about the holiness that we need to live and he's going to use words about how we can be conformed by the lust of our ignorance and he doesn't use the word transform, but that's what he implies. Or we could be transformed by the holiness of God. Isaiah was transformed by the holiness of God. But isn't it interesting that before he reached that holiness, what did he do? He passed through pain and disappointment before he reached the holiness. And the pain and disappointment was in himself. When I see how great God is, I realize there's a curse on me. His next phrase, I am undone. And it's there that God says, remember how David said, if you wanted sacrifice, I'd give you sacrifice. But what do you want? A broken and a contrite heart. Isaiah right there, because he saw the holiness of God, what did he have? He had a broken and a contrite heart. And you know what God said? God says, now we can work. I can purge your sins and I can cleanse you. But when he said about this brokenness, real important question here. Why the first detail? Why was it his mouth? Why did he say, I'm ruined? And then when we look at the rest of verse five, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. James three says that the lips are the hardest things to control. But also when we look in Matthew, we learn that it's not a fork that feeds the mouth but it's the heart that feeds the mouth. We also learn in Matthew that we're going to give an account for every idle word that we speak. So what about if our heart is not right? If we don't understand the holiness of God and the holiness of God hasn't transformed us, how many words will we say on a daily basis that disrespect God or disrespect God's will for us? And then maybe someone says, well, is it a big deal? 
We don't live under the Ten Commandments today as because they are the Ten Commandments. We have a new covenant and all but one of those were brought over. But I just want to remind you of kind of a base beginning back in the Old Covenant. Of the Ten Commandments, there were only four commandments that dealt with our relationship with God and the six of the last six commandments dealt with our relationship with mankind. Do you remember what the third of the four commandments were that was our relationship with God? In Exodus, the 20th chapter and verse seven, it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now think about this. The seraphims were crying out the holiness of God. He's seeing the holiness of God. He says, I'm ruined. Why are you ruined? He says, I just look at my mouth and I see the things I say. And I know where that comes from. And I look around, I'll confess the sins of my people. I know what kind of people I'm from. Their mouth connected to their heart is no better. We're ruined, we're undone. I know what the commandments say. What about you? Does your heart and the words that pass through your mouth, do they honor the holy name of God? Or do they take his name in vain? And do they use euphemisms to take his name in slang vain? You can read the screen. I'd rather not read them out loud. But I beg you tonight, we're not talking about something light. Your lips are ruined if you don't honor the name of God. Your lips are not what they need to be. If you take God's name in vain, you're not thinking clearly of who you're talking about. You're not getting His holiness and our reverence that we must have toward Him and His name at all times. One of the ways you can recognize a Christian, as you can tell, how they use and how they don't use the name of God. And you can see the great respect that they have for Him and His holiness. Time flies when you're having fun. I want to close by showing you something. If you know this passage, it's going to mean something. If not, you're going to need to study it. As we close, I want to show you again Isaiah 6 and verse 6 and 7. Remember, 6 and 7 is where the tongs were taken and, and um, a coal was taken from the altar and that was a, a type of symbolism to cleanse his mouth because remember, that was where he confessed his problem was. God, my problem is my mouth has not been clean. And so... The Lord, isn't that wonderful? We talked this morning about God's holiness is not there because he wants to condemn us. God's holiness is reaching out because he wants to save us. He wants his face to shine upon us because he wants his grace to save us. He wants us to know peace. And here's just another example of it. It's like, okay, you think you're undone. Okay, we can work with that kind of spirit. 
We can work with one. And, and let me show you, I'm going to forgive your sins and, and I'm going to let you start again. And, and so that's beautiful. And it is as beautiful as we just said it is. But now pause for just a moment. What did he have to go through to reach that point of peace? What did he have to go through to reach that point of, of, of uh, forgiveness? He had to go through pain. He had to go through deep, painful discomfort. Isaiah, how do you feel about yourself? I feel ruined. I cast judgment. Woe is me. Brother, that was real. That's not him just saying, I think this is what he'd want me to say right now. How do we get to forgiveness and peace? There has to be that moment of brokenness that says, look who I am. But look who he is and what he can do to me. And when we find that brokenness, he can do amazing things. And that reminds me of Hebrews 12. And, and we're not going to read it, but on this next slide, you see phrases like this. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by God. Or skipping down to 10. For we may be partakers of his holiness, talking about him correcting us. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields what? Peaceable fruit of righteousness. You see all the words we've been studying? Holiness, peacefulness. And the Hebrew writer says, you realize you don't get there unless you let God punish you a little bit? And so then the question is, what are you going to do in the punishment? Are you going to say, oh, I don't want to feel that. I want to think I'm better than that. I'm above that. Are you willing to humbly be corrected? Are you willing to humbly say, God, I'm ruined and I want to come to you? And then to hear God say, come home, son, come home, daughter. All of that is wrapped up in the holiness of God as we seek to be holy as he is holy. And tonight, if we can help you take steps towards a holy God,